0: Hey everybody, welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hey there. Hello. Today on the show we are going to talk about the Idaho state murders and Brian C. Koberger who has been arrested for the crimes. I want to just start out by talking about the case in general so that just in case you would like a succinct recap of what's been going on. And there's been a lot of news on it anyway. And there's been a lot. On November 13th, 2022... Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Zana? Yeah, it looks like Zana or Zana. Zana yeah. Kernodle and Kaylee Goncalvez. My apologies if I've mispronounced. But these are four students at the University of Idaho who were found dead at home near the campus in Moscow, Idaho. The killings occurred on a Saturday night after two of the victims had been at a bar together and two others had been at a party together. Authorities went a number of weeks without identifying a suspect pleading with the public for tips and videos. And, you know, this is where our social media, you know, the cops want us to use our social media to figure out, you know, what happened. And so on December 30th, 2022, the police arrested Brian C. Koberger, a 28 year old, PhD criminology student at Washington State University uh, who lived about 10 miles from Moscow and charged him with murder. So Mr. Koberger was taken into custody at his parents' home, actually, in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania on January 4th. Authorities transported him by plane from Pennsylvania, where he had made an initial court appearance the day before, to Idaho. During that hearing, the suspect agreed to be extradited. Took him back to Idaho and he faces four counts of first degree murder and one count of felony burglary. Authorities have yet to detail a motive in the case, actually, or how investigators came to identify him as a suspect. Mr. Koberger has said he looks forward to being exonerated, Mm -hmm. according to his public defender. He does maintain his innocence at this point and has not been tried and convicted. And so he is innocent until proven guilty in this country. There are posts made by Mr. Koberger on an online forum, as well as interviews with those who knew him and messages he sent to friends that were obtained by, you know, journalists that show that he had written years ago of having suicidal thoughts, not being able to feel emotions and observing his own life as if it were a video game. So just in that small sentence, we sort of see the, the blunting of affect, at least that he's admitted to uh, suicidal thoughts. So perhaps being, feeling as if he shouldn't be here anymore. And then also the depersonalization of sort of seeing your life outside your life.
1: I believe he also had a, an addiction to opiates mm-hmm. too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. he used heroin. There's a lot of all of that stuff that we can get into a little bit later when we talk about him in particular, but I don't know. You, you probably saw this Kathy, but they also a few weeks ago came out with the court uh, records, I guess mm-hmm. the, that they have so far. And some of the things that they have understood about the case. And so I just wanted to go over that. I read Mm -hmm. a a couple of articles from the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to, you know, kind of get myself and, and the listeners up to speed with that, just in case you aren't following this case closely. So there were some records that were provided and made public that, kind of outlined the case. And so there's some revelations in that that were, have been reported on widely a few weeks ago. One is that there was a roommate that survived this, that actually saw the masked man leave. So mm-hmm. for lack of a better understanding of this case, let's say it is Mr. Koberger that was in the home and, and murdered these folks. This Roommate saw him leave she heard crying and she saw a person in black clothing and a mask leaving (laughs) described the figure as 5'10 or taller male not very muscular bushy eyebrows and that she was frozen in shock when she saw and she just saw the man leave through the back sliding glass door and she locked herself in the room And she didn't recognize the person. They were obviously covered or what have you. So that was one piece that came Mm -hmm. from these records. Another thing was that investigators found a knife sheath, like a leather knife sheath there Mm -hmm. that later we found out later that they tested DNA from. And then they tested DNA from the trash at Brian's parents' house. And the trash at Brian's parents' house had his father's DNA on it. And it was like the 99.999 percentage Mm -hmm. that the person from that trash is related or a biological parent to. The killer who was the DNA found on the knife sheath that was found. So that could be a very key piece of evidence that Mm -hmm. happens, that, that DNA testing and this kind of goes into who Brian is, is they do talk also in this affidavit, I think it's called, uh, about him applying to work at the local police department, which is now part yeah. of the profile too, right? Right. So we have, we have somebody who has a undergraduate degree in psychology, a master's degree in I think criminal science, something like that and then was working on his PhD in criminology. There's, there's one other piece I'll add really quickly.
1: I don't know if you have it in
0: there, but this came out, I
1: think, in the last couple of days too, is they now have record that Brian had been DMing one of the victims. It, it was really subtle and, and cryptic, and it would just say like, hey, how are you? Mm -hmm. and she would never respond but Mm -hmm. he was pretty persistent so he had been in contact with one of them before the murders
0: isn't that interesting because i don't know about you but i get those kinds of I get those kinds of text messages all the time yeah from and and i don't know because i never answer but i have people in my life that try to mess with people who do that and they usually end up being like uh, sex workers or telemarketers or yeah. whatever like that but you know that just leads me to believe like maybe not maybe they're worse yeah maybe it's a serial killer right they've also uncovered the a lot of video around him at least his car driving back and forth in front of the victim's house a bunch of yeah. times between like 3 30 and 4 20. he clearly had an obsession with one if not two of the women clearly and it's well documented on the this video of his car and and all of that so that there's no running away from that i don't know how you explain that away and then the audio that was captured of the barking the dog barking because I did there was a dog in the house mm-hmm. that's um, one of the victim's dog that was barking mm-hmm. just before his car is seen like speeding away from the area, right. type of thing. So, there's that kind of circumstantial or correlative evidence, so to speak. And then, that they thought originally that all four victims were just asleep and then they were woken up to be murdered. But apparently, one of them was probably um, awake because there was a DoorDash order at 4 a.m. and mm-hmm. the killings happened just shortly after 4 a.m. I think one of the victims
1: also she was um she had tried fighting back. Ah. and so she had deep cuts, gotcha, from trying to grab Defensive the knife. Ones. yeah, mm-hmm. which is, you know, when he showed up to mm-hmm. his first hearing, he had cuts and stuff on his face. they that there there's now some evidence showing that those cuts on her hand from her, her likely trying to grab the knife he was using.
0: Sure. And once they identified that the car that was speeding away from the house, from those videos, once they identified what it was, I think it was like a Hyundai or something or Mm -hmm. Elantra. Um, Hyundai Elantra. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they put out, of course, a bulletin for everybody to be looking for this car. And one of the, actually one of the campus officers is one of the people that found the car, because of course this guy was a student. And the Washington's at Washington State University and a police officer with campus, uh, a campus officer is the one that found uh, his uh, Brian's car Mm -hmm. at the university and called it in, et cetera, and figured out. And then that's when they made the correlation and on we go. Also, Koberger's phone was disconnected during the killings. I guess he either put it on airplane mode or oh, interesting, or he turned it off or what have you. Between two forty seven a.m., mm-hmm. the phone just stops like pinging the network, and then and then after that, it's it's turned back on. So yeah. that was that was at four forty eight, which is like literally like twenty minutes after when the murders happened. He mm-hmm. he turned it back on. Yeah, it's and it also says here from four fifty to
1: five twenty six AM the phone used cellular resources consistent with the phone traveling south on the highway to Genesee, Idaho. Meaning towards them or, or away from um, I guess away from oh e- back to Yeah, back to. Uh-huh. Providing coverage. Yeah. So it says that it, it just it add, basically what they're saying is, is it adds up.
0: Yeah. Because he's traveling
1: back to Coburger's residence.
0: Yeah, they said that the um the suspect, meaning Brian, had utilized the cellular phone between nine twelve and 9-20 to return to Moscow and the home. And and his phone, I guess, was peeing in the area of the home. In other words, so if he murdered them at 4-something, five hours later, he actually drove back by the house. And the cops had not... 911 uh, hadn't been called yet or any mm-hmm. of that, apparently. So mm-hmm. he was driving back to see. He was probably driving back... I mean, this is conjecture on my part, but he's probably driving back to see well the hubbub, you know, how they return to the scene and they want to see how it all Mm -hmm. materializes and yeah. How a lot of times on crime shows you always see like, oh, they could be in the crowd right now. They return to the Yeah. That's part of the high. Especially anyone who wanted to be a police officer. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's that part of that profile is like They're just as obsessed with the solving of the crime as they are of doing the crime.
1: He was clearly obsessed with all of that, like not only wanting to become a police officer, taking courses in criminology, learning from Catherine Ramsland, perhaps writing letters to Dennis Rader while he was in prison. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there are people who love true crime. And then there are, I was looking at this uh, article that said there's also this influx of people who, um, go into that field with a really unhealthy sort of fetish around it. The, the closest I can comment on that is when I was working with sex offenders. When I was working up in San Francisco, one of the, he was a politician.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he was actually one of the leads in the sex offender um, division of the department and he ended up getting arrested for child porn. And so when I would ask him how he got there, you know, at least his his disclosure was, you're around it enough, you become consumed by it, by it being your job. Mm-hmm. And then one thing, you know, and then they found so much in his home. So, you know, some people who work that closely to it also are that close to it because there's an underlying desire for it. Yeah,
0: we get both, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I've grown up around criminology and and all of that my whole life. My father, I, I don't talk about him that often on the show, but my father is... Uh, you know, taught in the criminal justice department and criminology, and as an expert witness. And so I grew up around that all my life. And that was probably like early interest in, uh, you know, writing papers in my undergraduate on Charles Manson and and all of that. Like I had that just like a lot of people I think in our generations had early fascinations with that stuff. You and I have spoken about your early fascinations with reading true crime and all Mm -hmm. that. Our our culture at large is obviously Mm -hmm. slightly obsessed with true crime. So we're not talking about that. And I can only speak personally where I just know the difference of how it feels to be interested in those things and be interested in human science and have that very powerful sort of masculine influence in my life. That's like political science, criminology, criminal justice, FBI mm-hmm. agents and cops in the home, like being surrounded by all of that mm-hmm. early and also as a young adult. And then con- and continually, my dad is still alive, continually having conversations about that because he ha- is continually sitting on cases and providing expert <laughs> expert reports yeah. and, and testimony and, and all of that. Now, I, you know, I just know what it feels like to not be obsessed as a person, but to be interested. Interested, yeah, very so, different. So I want to say that to those of you who are listening to let you know that, like, there's a not-so-subtle difference around it. Right. It's like what Kathy is describing is – is someone who's coming into it with a uh, a profoundly traumatic background? Perhaps we don't really know anything about this guy, but we're going to talk now a little bit about him um, or what we know about him. But you know, depending on where he comes from and his makeup, and the generally the people that we've talked about on this show, we just don't know if he fits into that makeup. And he obviously hasn't been tried and convicted yet, so we're coming mm-hmm. at it from that perspective. But there's a difference between that obsession. And the interest that many of you may find, and mm-hmm. the reason why you listen to podcasts like this, <laughs> right? Because it is interesting. Yeah, because he has an undergraduate degree in psychology, and he's working on his PhD in criminology. Like we get it. Yeah, <laughs> Kathy is a forensic psychologist. Yeah, which no, is we about criminology. We so. get it.
1: The motivation is different. In fact, before we move further, I just want to mention that he allegedly shared a Reddit post months before the killings seeking to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence the decision-making involved in committing a crime. So that in itself is a really great study for someone who is interested in the field and wants to contribute to the field, or it's a way of fantasizing and rehearsing. So when someone is antisocial, psychopathic, among, I believe, he's other things, which I'll talk about, this is very much him sharing his rehearsal but it coming off as someone who just really wants to be informed and contribute yeah. to research.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I watched a 48 hours on him. Uh, that was, that was okay. It, it was kind of about the murders, but also a little bit about him. And they interviewed a co- some of his teachers, a couple of yeah. his teachers. And, you know, I mean, I heard one of the teachers sort of say like, Oh, I feel like I should, cause you know, these are criminologists, right? They think, yeah. you know, they think they're going to like, catch everyone see something something. and it's like I I completely get that because obviously if you had some if you had this guy in your chair and he was you know a a patient of yours and you didn't see it and it blindsides you that's a feeling that we all have right and so I get why these teachers would think that maybe they could have seen something and so now they're like in hindsight they're like looking back and one of them was like I feel like I should have seen something like because of course the interviewer asks him about you know, is there anything now that you reflect on that you feel like, you know, and oh, there was this one comment in this class about, you know, asking questions about the kinds of things that you're talking about in that Reddit post. And I feel like maybe I should, but I think what you and I are saying is that that can be very average curiosity behavior that any one of us would have asked those questions and that there isn't anything necessarily that we know of right now. Like I don't we'll see. In five years, we might be going like, oh, they should have seen it. But now from what I'm hearing, it's like, no, you know, these guys are
1: really good at this for a reason. Well, and people that go into that field and study that, if they don't have an interest in that, that wouldn't make sense either. No, so exactly. how you're able to, and here, here's a thing. And I can speak to this as a professor is when you get students who are really passionate, uh, that feeds your ego, oh. because that means that like you're doing something right as a professor where, you know, like I'm really proud. I have three graduate students right now who are doing their thesis and their poster on, you know, disorganized attachment around, parents who are more narcissistically oriented. And and a lot of that comes from the stuff that I've taught them. And I love that they're taking that and making a meal out of that. That's like I love that they're passionate about that. So it's very easy and human as a professor to go, oh, I love that you're into what I'm studying and you want to know more about that. 99% of the time, that's going to be a really innocent and productive thing. But then there's going to be that 1% where it's someone who's learning how to Rehearse and, you know, do all of these other things that there's no possible way, trained or not, that you could identify that just by having interactions. However, I will say this, and we're going to get into this in a moment, so I won't go into too much. There were other things about this man that did go overlooked, and there were other things that people did not bring to the attention of authorities or... I don't know who they would have, been. maybe it was professors, maybe it was authority, I don't know, because there's a trajectory of personality here and interest that goes beyond curiosity. And I've said this before on some of our Patreon minicasts on Mondays, if, if you're a patron, we do Monday minicasts, and I've talked about this before, where in risk assessment, someone doesn't become violent overnight. When we do that psychological autopsy we can really take a, a, a long look at all the warning signs that were there that people overlooked. And we'll, we're going to get into that in a moment when we get into his psychology because this guy had clear signs that something was wrong.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're going to talk about. He was born in November 1994, Brian Christopher Koberger. He's 28 years old, so he's right in that age. I don't know if he's ever hurt anything or anyone prior to this. But I do know that this sort of twenties, late twenties, is an age where they often, at least in what we've talked about, it's like many times that's a time when they start to kill. Um, I have a curiosity, you know, something we just mentioned was if he's so smart and so into it, I don't, I don't think he's all that smart because like he got caught real fast, and the DNA was right there, and the car, and the You know, we, we've talked about guys that have done this for decades yeah. and I realize that's unique. I realize that is not the norm, but for a criminologist, the DNA right there, the knife behind the car, all you have to do is watch
1: one episode of forensic files and drives
0: by all the video, like the hubris, the, 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 the narcissism in the, and then now saying, Oh no, I'm innocent. I'm going to be exonerated. Which is the part where he knows not to admit anything and not mm-hmm. to confess and and to plead not guilty to try to get off? You know, that's the part of the system he understands, but he doesn't understand. Like, is he taunting them or is he just not very bright?
1: It could be both, and I also think he's delusional, which I'll talk about.
0: That too. Yeah. So let's let's get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there come a, a couple of things I noticed, and I'll just get it started, and then I imagine you'll take the you'll take the road is like I said before, he's got a lot of higher education. Mm -hmm. I also am struck by the fact that everybody kind of talks about how, how calm he is, how calm he was during the arrest, how calm he is in court, how calm, you know, and that makes sense to me on a number of levels. It could either make sense to me because he's delusional and there's some piece of him that is going to claim he was mentally ill or something. Or he is someone who is a psychopath, so he can remain calm through things that the rest of us would be freaking, very out. freaked out by. So that speaks to his guilt in many ways instead of his innocence. It's like an innocent person I don't think would be calm in any of this. Agreed with all that. I'm going to give you a couple of additional facts here to add.
1: A couple things we know about him is that his, his mother was actively involved in speaking out against school shootings okay she had a lot to say around sandy hook and she had made comments about who should be responsible and how the shooter should be treated and there was a lot of she spoke up a lot kind of i don't think she was protecting both sides because she did say that the children needed to be protected but she was very active and emotionally charged in in a lot of those school shootings. And she was very outspoken about that. In addition to that, his sister is a therapist. So he grew up with a lot of psychology. He obviously got a degree in psychology and a mother who was very political, politically active with school shootings and things like that.
0: Oh, and one thing I didn't mention is Mm -hmm. that he's a TA. So he's a budding professor as well.
1: Yes. Yes. Budding professor. Yeah. He also had an insatiable craving for meat and, and feared becoming a cannibal. So he was strictly vegan and, and his family would buy him new pots and pans that had never been touched by meat because he feared that he would then, you know, do something. If that isn't a warning sign, I don't know what is. But we know that right there, you're you're we're pointing to very odd beliefs, some OCD. Um, there's some real kind of delusional and concerning traits there. Beyond his academics, he was described by those close to him as a loner, difficult to get along with. We talked about him having history of substance abuse issues. A one time. Koberger friend Thomas Arndt said over time it just got so bad that I just shut down when he was around when, when I was around him. He said that prior moving prior to moving to Pullman Koberger finished a master's degree in criminal science from DeSales and then he studied under renowned forensic psychologist Dr. Catherine Ramsland who's responsible for most of the research that I I've done on the BTK for our episodes on that, and she has spent years interviewing him. So he is very obsessed with that case, and with her. In some ways, it feels very creepy to me that he took classes from her, almost like he was following her in a way too. Yeah.
0: Another well, learning, learning from her, learning right? from
1: her, and mm-hmm. there's something also like how great to say that he learned from her. There's oh, yeah, narcissism, dropping
0: those names. So.
1: Another longtime friend, Nick McLaughlin, said that he was down to he was a very down to earth kid until his senior year where everything shifted, lost a lot of weight, probably from opiates, I would imagine. And then he became very aggressive and he would all of a sudden just try to fight everybody. So we know, okay, high school, we're in late adolescence, young adulthood. And so there's hormones involved. There's personality changes involved. And if you throw chemicals in there, it's a recipe for disaster just to kind of paraphrase everything that I'm throwing at you is we have someone who has a major personality shift in the later part of his adolescent development. We know that there's substances involved in that. We know that he has very bizarre thinking. We know that there are at least narcissistic traits about him. The way that I am perceiving him, at least at this point is I be- I agree with Shannon that it's very possible that we're looking at someone who's more psychopathic than just narcissistic or sociopathic. We, we know that there, although we don't have a ton of information about his childhood killing animals or anything like that, we do know that there's a lot of just really abnormal, there's a lot of abnormal psychology here. Mm -hmm. Okay. In addition to that, there's a lot of research out there. There, there's a, an article I, I, uh, found called schizotypal and borderline features in psychopathic criminals. We do know that psychopathy, um, people who meet the psychopathy, the, the high high levels on the PCLR, which is basically a checklist that uh, if you score a certain number, then you're, uh, you fall within what would be deemed a psychopath, which is, you know, in a it's an extreme form of antisocial personality disorder. What we know is that they also have raised levels of schizotypal traits. So there's a comorbidity that happens between psychopathy and schizotypal. So what is schizotypal? It's a, it's also a personality disorder in the DSM and it's, it's characterized by a thought disorder, paranoia. Uh, We see ideas of reference. So ideas of reference might be like watching something on TV and they believe that the message is for them unusual beliefs perceptual illusions odd thinking and speech suspiciousness inappropriate affect strange behavior lack of friends paranoid social anxiety he fits all of that
0: yeah um so I think that we there's a combo with this guy mm-hmm. I, I was reading something where one of his one of the people that he's taken a bunch of classes with talked about how their impression and as we know other people's impressions aren't aren't always interesting or accurate, but this guy's impression was that he was always looking for a way to fit in. Yeah. And that, um, he would quote unquote find the most complicated way to explain something, which I, you know, you hear a lot in, in this type of personality where it's, it's not word salad in a psychological sense, but it's definitely just like convoluted. And I get that a lot from a borderline, personality that's complicated with some narcissism and with, uh, I've just sat with that before where they're talking in circles and I don't know if that's what this guy's talking about, but just like, whereas you and I, I mean, maybe you and I err on the side of directness when we explain things, but it's like. I'm going to err on the side of just say, saying what it is, and he's going to find the most complicated way, way to explain something very simple. Okay. And then this guy was kind of saying that, like, he he had to make sure you knew that he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. Like, that's how it felt yeah. to this guy. So, like, you know. Yeah. It goes along with, I think, just what you're saying. Absolutely. That's, that's, yeah, that's yeah there's just
1: thing. something, you know, you, you talk to someone like this, and you can just tell their are they're, they're bizarre they're a little off they're yeah.
0: off-putting and so he's looking for a way to like fit in or be mm-hmm. acknowledged or be respected or like hey I'm normal too kind of thing yeah it's and how, I th- what I hear in that
1: absolutely and I think that that's what also makes me lean more towards the psychopath than just like your garden variety narcissist or sociopath yep. because yep. narcissists actually know how to mirror quite well and they are they are you know, they have that cognitive empathy. They can usually read what the person is needing, but a psychopath because they have a lack of any sort of social etiquette and they're so reptilian that they they have to try a lot harder. And that
0: whereas he might be thinking he's like looking like he's knowledgeable and fitting in, there's this effort there that you just don't see in your average—that's right—person. It's like the average PhD student is, of course, going to have lots of conversations about what they're studying with you, and they're also—I find this a lot in in higher education students. It's like they're also going to talk about all the things they know and how they're expert. Mm-hmm. You know, a little knowledge goes goes mm-hmm. goes awry sometimes mm-hmm. until you graduate and you're working in the field, and then your ego sets aside and you get humbled again. Right? There's a lot of that, and we all went through that. I'm not saying it's unique. And so there's, there's that. And then there's this, which feels a little bit different. I did want to also mention, you know, we were talking earlier about Or I was saying earlier about how, you know, like he drove back by and Uh I'm going to fantasize that he was driving back by to like get a look at it all, get a look at the bodies coming out, get a look at the cops, get a look at the scene, maybe even like stop and talk to people like I would totally imagine him doing that. But I guess what happened is um, I guess one of Koberger's neighbors in Washington said that the suspect actually spoke to him about the killings days after they occurred, he kind of like uh, this neighbor, I guess, says that he brought it up in conversation and that he just asked if I'd heard about the murders, which I had. And so the guy probably said, like, yeah, I've heard about them And he said, yeah, seems like, you know, they don't have any leads. Seems like it was a crime of passion, he says to the guy.
1: Oh, how interesting! interesting so already right? trying to plan a seed, yeah, or, with,
0: with random neighbors, yeah, you know, just, such a psychopath. <laughs> I know. So these these little bits of pieces, these little bits of and, behavior, dude.
1: If you aren't involved. Then why are you hanging out? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's just. Well, an average people are going to think, well, he's a criminologist. He's yeah, probably he's, interested. To,
0: he's just interested. Yeah, He
1: just knew to drive by the house at 4 a.m. when there was yeah. a murder that no one was able to see unless you yeah, were in there.
0: Put his phone on airplane mode in the middle oh, of the fucking God, night when Brian, he's driving around doing nothing.
1: <laughs> he my guess would be that he was an incel. My guess would be that he uh, there was another thing that I had read about one of the local bars. He would go in and sit. And, you know, they, the, even the bartenders were told to not give him too much because he would start to get really creepy towards oh, women. And mm-hmm. um, so these are all those things that I'm talking about when you really look back at it. And I think the dilemma is for most people is, are we just going to report someone who's weird because law enforcement's not going to do anything about that. So when we're seeing an accumulation of these really bizarre behaviors I think my message to people is, no, you're absolutely right. Law enforcement can't arrest someone because they're bizarre. However, there does need to be, you know, maybe a mental health intervention or there needs to be, enough information, maybe the school should have known more, maybe, you know, and and this is what we're trying in risk assessment, especially in school settings, what we're trying to do is inform and educate people when you see these sorts of things, when you see a person that is consistently being identified as somewhat intrusive, you know, bothering people, all of this stuff that they were describing about him, say something
0: to someone, and let's get more eyes on him. Right at the very least, at the very least, it doesn't have to be intrusive. In other no. words, we don't have to meet him with, with his own behavior and be intrusive back, but just that awareness, yeah, that consciousness about it.
1: And this came up in Death in the Dorms too. When they, uh-huh. if they, the kid that was the lacrosse student, yeah. if people would have just been unapologetic about going, hey, we need to set this guy down yeah, and this see this what's going on. This feels this wrong. Feels Let's just talk to him. Maybe this one happened.
0: We are very apt in the society at giving people the benefit of the doubt because of our own inability to be embarrassed if we're wrong. Yes. We don't call people on their behavior and say, hey, this didn't feel right or say no or a lot of those kinds of things because what if we're wrong? And there's just this systemic idea of being wrong about those kinds of things mm-hmm. as being an awful thing, I guess. We're just afraid to be wrong about that. Right.
1: And this, we see this in a lot of different dimensions of the legal system. I see it all the time in family court where we'd much rather – not we, but uh, judges would f- – out of, you know, erring to the side of caution would rather believe that a parent is lying about the fact that the other parent abused a child than actually believe that a parent could be an abuser and why children sometimes go back to abusers because the judge is like, there's no possible way that that this parent right in front of me did that. Yeah. You know, so that's which what you're, a you're, gut
0: call, which we talk about all the time. You can't use a yeah. gut call.
1: So, but at least we do. And, and we do very true. What Shannon is saying is, we just want to go. Oh, I don't want to be mean, or I don't want to say. It's I don't not about a- cause a scene. It's not about being mean it's about potentially protecting
0: that person a and others there's a politeness people pleasing sickness that we all sort yeah. of have to varying oh, I degrees feel bad. Yeah. some of us more than others and i've mm-hmm. definitely been guilty of it my sure. whole life especially as like a shy kid like i i get it like i understand where that's coming from sure one thing i want to mention i guess the last thing that i'll mention today is i will be very interested to learn about this victimology This is two females, two males. Right. And they all were roommates. And from what I know, I don't know anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about the victimology here. That is not the thing that everybody's reporting on. Like they've had the victim's parents and all of that stand up and talk. And we've seen a lot of them talking in public uh, arenas and mm-hmm. advocating and and all of that. And I, and mm-hmm. I think that's lovely and, and absolutely necessary, but I don't know about this victimology and because he's not copying to these crimes, I don't know what we're about to learn. So that's right. I imagine yeah. we'll follow up. On we that.
1: will. There, I mean, this trial is really just starting if yeah. you think about it. So yeah. more to come.
0: Yeah, so these are just preliminary thoughts and preliminary information. So we will be learning with you. And if there, if you have any questions or anything you want us to comment on the next time we talk about this or in an ongoing way, please drop us a line at our email, tarotalkpodcast at gmail.com or on any of our social medias. We're happy to just have a continuing conversation about this case or any of the other cases that we're talking about. And if you want more information about forensics or risk assessment. Kathy does a lot of that in our Monday minicast, the extra materials that we create for Patreon. But other than that, please catch our next episode. And thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.